Hello and welcome to The Good, The Bad and The Advertising, the show where we ask, if the world were our client, what would the brief be? In each episode, we look to tackle some of society's biggest challenges with the same creativity and strategic rigour that Adlan tackles a client brief. I'm Amy Williams. I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, Dino Myers-Lamptey, and our special guest this week is Rosie Lawrence, Chief Strategy Officer of Mindshare LATAM. Rosie is joining us all the way from Mexico City, so bienvenida, Rosie. Oh, thank you, darling. It's a pleasure to be here, an honour, no doubt. <laughs> okay, so to kick us off this week, I'm going to start with a very poignant and philosophical quote from the comedy duo Mitchell and Webb. <clears throat> Women, you're leaking, aging, hairy, overweight, and everything hurts, and your children's clothes are filthy. No wonder men long for less clammy women. For God's sake, sort yourselves out. Men, shave and get drunk because you're already brilliant. <laughs> this is a comedy sketch from 2009, and it's parodying gendered advertising, but it's pretty on the nose. I mean, let's consider that advertising has been founded by powerful men, Ogilvy, Mather, Burnback, Hegarty, Saatchi. And the foundation of sexism is that men hold the power, which means women are cast into a secondary position where our power is dependent upon pleasing and satisfying men. In order to curry favour with the powerful, women must be seen to be helpful, agreeable, attractive, useful, and importantly, non-threatening. And this power dynamic has created a bias where women are interpreted and represented through the male perspective. Companies generously, perhaps even paternally, offer their products and services to us women as a handy way for us to bridge the gap between reality and the ideal woman. In a bid to illustrate how women can be truly agreeable and attractive and helpful if we just put in a bit more effort, advertising often forgets to present women as three-dimensional human beings. In 2019, PHL Research, in partnership with Mindshare, conducted a content analysis of 120 of the biggest brands on TV, and they found that 20% of ads that featured women showed them in a group throwing their heads back and laughing wholeheartedly. But in only 3% of those ads actually showed women being funny. In fact, women were rarely seen to be doing much at all. In the ads they reviewed, men spoke seven times more than women. So I'm going to end this introduction on a very simple question. Where are all the funny, clever, interesting, chatty women in advertising? And how can we strengthen their voices? Oh, Amy, do you know what? I love that quote. Um, uh, literally, as you were saying that quote, I'm like, that, that is genuinely me. You are actually talking to me. Um, and I started to think, do you know what? I actually want to see me. Like, you know, I know that was meant as a joke, but that's not what you see in advertising. You don't see an, a slightly overweight, uh, <laughs> slightly sweaty... Clammy, um, I think. Uh, woman. <laughs> clammy, clammy was, sorry, yes. Uh, uh, women don't sweat. Uh, they <laughs> Um, you know, you, you actually don't you don't see that. Um, and I think that, that that that's exactly your point. Right. And, you know, when you when you ask women, do they see themselves in advertising? Almost 70, 80 percent of them say, no, we don't see ourselves reflected. And I think it's not just about 
funny women. It's just about realistic representation of women. The ideal, especially down here in Latin America, where where kind of the male macho culture is so prevalent, that the ideal of a woman as a mother, as this goddess who looks after the house uh, and does nothing else is absolutely the norm. And yet, still down here in Mexico, 78% of women say that that's not who they are. And we know it's not who they are. It's how do we convince the patriarchy, she says, getting all comedy and feminist about it, to betray us realistically. Not, you know, I don't even want to be betrayed as hilarious and this, this you know, doyen of comedy. I just, want, I just want to see a middle-aged woman who's slightly overweight in an ad juggling a million yeah, things. Yeah, let's get the clammy women um, out. <laughs> That's what we want to see. <laughs> No, I completely, I completely agree with your point. The, the stats around how disengaged women are in advertising are, are very telling, right? That PHL research I mentioned, they found 66% of women in the UK don't connect with what they see in advertising. And as you mentioned, in Mexico, it's even worse, 76%. So you know, we're not connecting with the picture that's being presented to us, which means that brands aren't going to be selling that much product to us. Dino, you're the man in the room. Yes, and I'm glad I've had the opportunity to speak last because, uh, you know, you are the experts being the women. No, I mean, all right, so there's a number of provocations that I'm going to throw in here. And um, I mean, the first thing to say up front is that, you know, advertising has a a stereotyping problem with all sorts of minorities, let's say. True. Uh, and, And while women aren't a minority in advertising, they are certainly a minority in the positions of power. Uh, yeah. positions that make decisions so um even in for example in the marketing side uh, i think in the uk it's something like 45 percent of marketing mm. directors are women so so not the majority but but that's just marketing directors that's not necessarily cmos and and the heads of you know and um uh you know in, in my experience it's probably more like uh, in terms of all the clients that i've come across it's probably more like 70 30 in terms of that is male to female and those kind of you know the top kind of marketing positions and then you look into in terms of those companies and you look at the FTSE and the, the CEOs and the people that have really got the power and the CFOs and the numbers are even starker. So there is a minority problem with women in advertising and media and marketing. But particularly when you look at advertising, there is a, there's a serious problem when you look at creative departments. So the people that actually create the work and approve the work and decide who is casted and who isn't, um, you know, the creative director role, the, the executive creative director roles, that is where it's quite catastrophic. And it's not just catastrophic from a male-female perspective. It's also catastrophic from a seniority perspective as well. So there's a lack of uh, experience, you know, women in terms of, you know, it's pretty much like finding dinosaurs in a creative department if you find a woman that's over the age of about 40, let's say, in a significant position. So it's, it's no surprise that a lot of advertising is so stereotypical. It's so reflective of the people that are making the decisions who are, you know, men of a certain age who are in those positions. So I think that's uh, one kind of kind of point. But I will, the provocations I will throw into this uh, female audience that I'm, I'm in front of. We've done a lot of um, research quite recently, actually, for, uh, for a big kind of global female brand. And I'm glad that Rosie's in Mexico and you've already highlighted some of the differences in different countries. And, and what was significant is what women wanted and what, how women felt 
was different quite considerably between, for example, Europe and, and East Asia. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and the perceptions of independence, uh, you know, empowerment and things like that, you know, those kind of things that are, are slightly more kind of like bigger and expected in Europe were not seen to be quite ready yet in, in a lot of those other places. They weren't quite ready for it. You know, that's so interesting, Dino, because one of the things that I've experienced here is exactly that, that actually there's a lot of women stopping what I would call the progress of advertising and women. You know, although, and you're right, and we should highlight it, you know, CMOs, CEOs, CFOs, you know, the big power brokers, ultimately the people who make the final decisions are men. What I find is that and especially down here, is that it's it's kind of women in those more junior positions, but yet positions of approving, creative, and, you know, and putting ideas on the table are almost, I would say, kind of self-moderating, yeah. right? Oh, no, uh, you know, we couldn't do that because that's not what women are. And then, you know, you look around the room and I'm like, okay, so, you know, in this room of not the top dogs in the business, you know, there's 70% women. All of us are working women. And you're telling me, that we can't portray a working woman, that, that they have to look like this. It's interesting. It doesn't surprise me that Asia's a bit like that, but, but there's a real challenge, isn't it? You hit it right there. Yeah. If we're living in a world that's different to what we're showing, and we as women are saying no. The naked kind of raw truth is that a lot of women I speak to in the industry who are in you know not the most senior positions often cite women as being the potential barrier for their progression. Um, And that is, uh, you know, that's a sad kind of like harsh kind of reality in some cases. And um, and when you look into it, and and I think, you know, in defense of women, I think what you have is that you have the most senior women are often the people that have made the biggest kind of sacrifices Mm -hmm. in terms of the ones that the males um, have considered to be, you know, what you need to do to, you know, progress, let's say. So, for example, they've taken the shortest amount of time on maternity leave. They've, you know, been in the office every day. They've been less flexible about their working hours, all the rest of it. You know, they haven't gone down to four days a week or whatever else. They've just kind of like, you know, done it like the the, the men that are in those positions expect Mm -hmm. them to do and how they behave. They've almost kind of like, you know, cut themselves off from kind of family to be successful in a sense. And because of that, I think they are unfortunately, that has become their rule book for how you must do it to get into those positions. And I'm not saying this, I'm not speaking for everyone, but I think this is a, this happens too often. And then, and therefore, I think in terms of when there is, there are women beneath them who are trying to do it differently, normally, let's say, they are, they're looked down as to not necessarily having what it takes to, to get to top. And, and, and what I would say is that this also applies to, to men in the same instance, in terms of, you know, men getting judged yeah. by those same men in those positions, because, you know, this is what it takes. You have to work weekends because this is what it takes. And it becomes the culture, which is ultimately a toxic toxic culture. And that's why it's systematic and all the rest of it, or systemic in terms of the fact that you just keep on getting the same kind of results and the people who should be the solution are part of the problem, which uh, I think it also applies to race. And and I think what I would say in terms of race is, is that a lot of people that get through to, you know, very high levels don't necessarily feel the confidence to start to you know, change the rules while they're there suddenly because they almost feel like they're still treading on water once they get in those positions. And they're just thinking about, you know, how can I just maintain this position for as long as possible in a sense, rather than actually going, hang on, I've, I've got through the hard way. Now I've got to change the rules so no one else has to go through the, the awful path I've had to take. Absolutely, 100%, totally agree with you. You know, and, and as you're saying that, you know, I'm like, you know, I live in a 1950s family. I'm a CSO, but my husband looks after the kids. I barely see them, even though we're in the house. It's horrific. But 
you know, one of the things that I am trying to do is celebrate all the wonderful women in my business. I'm, you know, I'm absolutely trying to make it, and especially down here in Latin America, you know, I'm, I'm trying to ensure that other women don't have to do the same sacrifices or men to that point, right? I've got a, a, you know, a guy on my team who's recently had a baby and there's no paternity leave here. So, you know, I'm absolutely fighting that he also has the opportunity. Well, of course, right? Because we, we can't do this by ourselves. You know, we're all in it together. Be that women, minorities, you know, we have to stand up for ourselves, even though it feels scary as hell to be the one standing there waving the flag mm. and, and, you know, doing it. I, I want to I throw in the idea of how much and how responsible advertising is to uh, change perceptions. Because I think often what is the problem and why you get kind of stereotypical advertising is because people um, are following a bit of a formula. And let's just say it's a bit like, you know, no one got fired for doing this or whatever. You know, so if it is a, you know, an advert, let's say a fashion advert, and it is about models, that's why I think you had just kind of trend of just, you know, models getting skinnier, skinnier, skinnier and getting photoshopped even more. And, you know, and everyone getting kind of like, you know, made to look perfectly I recall um, a story that someone told me quite recently about a photo shoot uh, quite a while ago with uh, the, uh, remember the singer Jamelia? And he said that he worked on a, a magazine, I think, and when they, um, they sent the images they'd taken, the, the, the photographic images they'd taken, which were just real and you know, quite natural, to the PR agency, I think, who were you know, kind of like approving you know, without even Jamelia's knowledge, they basically refused to have them unless they were photoshopped in a certain way to, you know, get them up to some kind of level of standard or something. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily even part of her consciousness that, you know, this was happening. But that just became the, you know, the, the thing that, you know, had to be done. I was like, if you're not doing that, you're not providing the service that we expect to make our artist look like, you know, she's some kind of, you know, superwoman or whatever. No, exactly. And that's what I mean about... You know, in fact, there was a recent case here. It was Mother's Day on the 10th of May, and one brand ran these big outdoor posters, kind of, in theory, celebrating mothers. And and one of them, basically, you know, it's in Spanish, but, you know, it was all kind of clever typography. And, you know, they got the, the words, we love you, mama, through the things. But it was basically saying, you know, it's terrible that you have to go and work and leave me alone all day. And so, obviously, the feminist backlash was like, are you kidding me? In this day and age, you're making mothers feel guilty about going out to work when actually, you know, but the point and the same with the Jamelia case, right? How many women sat in meetings and saw that Mm -hmm. and didn't feel empowered? And I bet in the Jamelia case, the PR agency was probably mainly women, right? Um, And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, we as women are doing ourselves down, but we don't feel empowered, I think, to stand there and say, hang on a second, are you kidding me? That's not right. And that, for me, is the key point. How can we, there's a lot of women in marketing, in advertising, in, you know, that, well, there was more, I think, that, you know, during the recession, we, we've kind of lost a fair amount, especially kind of older women. Um, but how can we empower, even though we're not the CMO or the CFO or the, the CEO, how can we empower women to feel okay to stand up in a meeting and say, no, sorry, that's not cool, right? It's almost like the people who have achieved this special status within the boys club 
feel that it is so fragile and so precious that they can't challenge it. And what I don't think we should do is structure this brief around those few that have got through because they have so much weight on their shoulders already in terms of being a mentor, being a source of inspiration, also managing their own decisions, as Dino's mentioned, the sacrifices they've made to get there. And it's a huge weight to put on them to say that in that room, when you're the only woman or you're the only person that looks different to everyone else, for whatever reason, you should stand up and fight for all of us. What I would love to do is focus the brief more on how we can make that position in the boys club feel less fragile so that they have the strength and the confidence that they can bring more women to the table and not lose their own seat. I I think I think one of the clues in the answer is probably about how decisions get made and the use of kind of real search research and real people um, you know consumers because you know one of the things that you know you mentioned at the start was that you know, people expect you know it to be different, and that's the way the kind of the world is. And people want to see people like them, and and representation of you know of real life in in ads and campaigns. And I think that you know ultimately, advertising and marketing are too often falls within a bubble. And actually, I think the creative process often fights against doing research at the set at the right points, at the relevant points. It becomes you know a, a lot of time spent on ideation and a very short amount of time spent on casting and actually you know, making the decisions of, of who those people are, you know, are exactly. And that kind of gets passed on down the line a little bit to someone else's responsibility. And, you know, the amount of meetings that I've been in where I've seen creative work presented where I haven't seen them talk about the detail of, you know, the casting, who the person's going to be, you know, what they're going to look like, not necessarily where they're from and, you know, and, and who they are. And, and I guess in terms of, you know, it can go quite far down the line with all the right approvals. And then suddenly it's in the hands of a casting agent or a producer or someone who's just thinking, oh, well, they're going to want a model in there, you know, rather than, you know, just a normal person. Um, so, so I think that in terms of if there, if there is the right kind of validation process to check with you know, real people, consumers, then I think you'll probably get more honest feedback because the proof is in the pudding of the advertisers that are confident enough to do it. People like Dove, for example, you know, it's it's probably a good example to bring because Real Beauty was such a kind of like a famous campaign in the marketing world. But, you know, I, I was recently sitting in a meeting where we were talking about that and the impression was, oh, yeah, but it's, you know, it's all a bit old and stereotypes, so we shouldn't really be kind of playing on that area. But it was like, actually, this was 10 years of success, you know, back to back, consistent kind of market growth. They absolutely smashed it. They completely kind of like, you know, disrupted the market. So it's easy to look back and go, oh, yeah, mm. but it's kind of like been done and whatever else. But actually, there was a truth. There was some real product truths in there. And then they kept at it. They stuck with it. But they also committed to the whole kind of idea beyond just it being advertising. And now they're taking on the selfie thing. Two things on that, Dina. First of all, how sad is it that the establishment reestablishes itself and says, oh, well, that's done now. Dove have done it. Right. So, you know, there's not, it's not new anymore to use real people. But the second point about measurement, uh, which I think is really important, and it suddenly made me think those advertisers that do do pre-testing, right, which is not all of them, let's say. But, you know, how could we actually build into that pre Because I'm kind of thinking about, you know, those pre-tests and what are the questions and, you know, is it screened for normal people? And I don't think I've ever seen a breakdown of those pretests that shows me, it doesn't show me for race. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't actually necessarily ask 
some interesting questions that might lead us to make different decisions. And I know they're very standardized for, you know, for a very good reason and all of that. But yet, if there was a way to build into that kind of pre-testing and research, some kind of measurement around realness, differentiation. Um, and it has been proven, you know, like you were saying, it's not just female stereotypes, but, you know, there, there is campaigns. There are campaigns. Dove is, is a great example, but many other campaigns that have had great success by breaking stereotypes and, and gender stereotypes. You hit the nail on the head, though, in terms of standardization. You know, we accept the standards and we think they're OK because they're the standards, but not because they are actually the right, right, you know, the right thing. So, um, you know, I've been behind uh, a, a kind of like a consortium called Voices for All, which basically identified the fact that omnibus kind of panels were disproportionately, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they weren't accurate in terms of their representation. And they're yeah. just considered to be the standard, you know, so everyone just kind of like carries on thinking that they're getting a fair representation of the UK and they're actually not. You know, you can be in a room and, and just assume that, okay, everyone th- thinks in a certain way the globe thinks. And then suddenly you're doing global work, which is like really offending people in one part of the globe. And you don't necessarily really know why. You've got to go in expecting that it's going to offend or expecting that some of these stereotypes are outdated. So this whole thing about, you know, let's just pick an example uh, about, let's say, women wearing high heels. I had this debate the other day in a group with men and it was about who makes women wear high heels in terms of, you know, their uncomfortable shoes. And, and is, it, is it that women, they, want, they wear it because they want to wear it, they wear it for themselves? Or, or is it because, you know, actually there's an expectation in certain kind of circles that men are going, yeah, put your high heels on or whatever. And then it's actually the history of high heels was actually first worn by men. Um, and it was, a, you know, a, a sign of, you know, sophistication, style and sexiness. Oh, to be a fly on the wall of this conversation. I love the idea of like five men in the pub with a pint going like, why do women, do we make women wear heels? What's the, I would have paid money to be in that conversation. <laughs> and did you, did you net out saying, well, if they were for men to begin with, let's yeah, reclaim are you wearing them right now? <laughs> Bring back, they come in here, drink our beer, steal our high heels. <laughs> <laughs> Look, to bring it back on track, it feels like there are there are two potential avenues for our brief. Either we focus it on making the subconscious conscious in the decision-making processes of the advertising research through to production. So how do we how to create checks and balances when people are deciding the panels for the research, when people are casting the talent for the ad and everything in between. So that subconscious to conscious decision making could be an interesting avenue. And the other one we spoke about a little bit earlier is the idea of bringing more allies to the table empowering people to speak up on behalf of those who are underrepresented in the room and giving them the tools to do that. So it feels like either way, we're really focusing on the systems and the systematic processes within advertising. Which of those do you guys feel would be the richer territory for us to spend the next 30 minutes talking about? I I would suggest that actually they're they're one and the same, almost, right? If you can bring the subconscious, you know, and destroy unconscious Mm. bias, then I think that you will also create more allies. Okay. Right? For me, I think, you know, I love a bit of unconscious bias and how we're going to tackle that. Okay. Feels like we're, we're starting to nail down a brief then. Do you know, you're happy with this as a focus point? I like it. All right. Sweet. I actually could dive straight in with a, with an idea. So just hearing you guys speak then, it reminded me of a campaign that Goodloop ran recently, 
with uh, Pantene. So we work with Pantene on their uh, Hair Has No Gender campaign, which is this fantastic campaign supporting trans and gender non-binary people within the beauty community. And, you know, we work with them to raise money for various charities around that. The interesting part was when we ran the research uh, on the success of the campaign, Pantene told us to target women, but we found considerably higher engagement with the content from men. And we we raised this with them in the post-campaign wrap-up and we talked about what that might mean. And I wonder, could we start an initiative that's about taking gender off briefs? So you just aren't allowed to talk about if this is an ad for a woman or a man. I'm slightly inspired by an initiative that started by Purpose Disruptors. Uh, So a Mindshare initiative called Change the Brief. And uh, the idea is that they challenge clients around sustainability in the briefs, making the brief more sustainable in the way it's talking to consumers and changing consumers' behavior for the planet. Could we do a Change the Brief for gender that's a genderless brief, right? No knickers, no boxers, no gender. And you can't put whether this is for men or women on the brief, be it a creative brief or a media brief. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. And actually, I I try to do that quite a lot. I recently had a brief for some cookware products for for a client um and I I went back to them and you know they said that the audience is you know women 18 to 40 I was like no it's not the 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 audience is Mm. is men and women are you are you telling Mm. me that only women cook here's all the data absolutely not so uh no I I I absolutely love that and the the other kind of I, I often challenge this this whole kind of gender stereotype thing is that when you do research against men, when you when you ask, you know, how did this particular ad, whether it was for a woman or well, generally if it's for women, so you know, all of the CPG mm-hmm. type products, you know, that's generally their target audience yeah. is housewives with kids. But when you, you know, A include a man and B do the research against men as to how they thought the ad performed. Because men are so, like, they're this rare breed. Hello, Dino, you rare breed, you know, men. Um, that because you're not talked to about washing powder or fairy liquid or other brands are available, etc. When you are talked to, you're like, oh, my God, it's a product for me. Finally, they get me. And actually, men are far less cynical and far more open to this kind of advertising than we as women are because we have been uh kind of uh you know what's the bombarded word? with it exactly we're 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 so over it we completely gloss it out but actually you turn it and you suddenly put you know the man as the target for a housewives with kids and you get a huge amount of engagement massive more uplift and a better roi so yes no money equals everybody challenges the gender brief very, very good. Both excellent uh, ideas. I, th- I think for me, the um, the mo- no money thing is about um, who's who's making the ads and um, you know who's in the room. You know, with the best kind of will and best kind of briefs in the world, what you've got to probably realize is that you know men and women do come at things from different perspectives, and there are differences, and there are differences that you can't imagine being the opposite you know like you know you just you just can't so um you know you can try and sometimes you you'll hit a home run and sometimes you'll completely miss and be striked out and i think that the only way you can guarantee kind of consistent kind of hits is by having the team you know completely split 
even biased in the opposite direction. So, so if you do get the briefs in there where you're thinking actually the target audience is predominantly women, then make sure that your creative teams are predominantly women. Um, you know, you don't have to be exclusive as such, but you know, you've got to make sure that you're reflecting the kind of the audiences and the different ages of the, of the customers and the people that will probably be engaging with you. So I think that in terms of my kind of like no zero money idea is probably about getting a bit more militant as to mm. who is working on the briefs, who is, who is, who are the agencies, who are the people, what are their structures and insisting on it. You know, I mean, I think that that's got to start with, you know, kind of clients looking at themselves, but insisting on it. I wouldn't have any of this kind of like um, you pitch and you see a nice kind of like balanced team, but actually you find out that the fe- the creatives are the men and the, and the females are the account people, and that's that's the balance ticked. No, actually, you know, I, I'd want to see the creative team working on the briefs, and I would want to see it being more than just one female team because again, they might be a young team, they might get it wrong. You know, I'd, I'd want to see three or four teams that are all female working on it, and a couple of teams that are all you know mixed or or with blokes. And I think for for me, kind of building on 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 both of that, you know, one is the briefing process and challenging ourselves on the brief. One is making sure that the people working on the brief, uh, you know, are representative. And the other would be the kind of classic. I think it's a sort of film test that certainly women, you know, actresses in their fifties are now kind of doing, which is what happens if I switch the characters. So mm. once I've got my uh, I've got my brief, you know, I've got my I've got my script. Actually. Do they need to be female voiceover, male voiceover? What happens if I switch that around? Does it still make sense? And if it does, then okay. But if it doesn't make sense, then potentially you've got a, you know, I've got a challenge, like a kind of check just before we go into production, right? That's such a good idea. There are so many films I watch where I think that film would have been so much more interesting if they'd done the exact same film, but the protagonist was a woman. I, that that idea of like, can you switch this character and it still holds up as like a yeah. really robust character? Yeah. That's a wicked idea. So simple. Yeah, I, I love I love it. And Rosie, but that is like a cheap check. That's yeah. a cheap kind of validation thing. That's when you can't afford research. You just go, all right, let's just do exactly the same thing, but switch the character, yeah. and it can mm. work for male, female, but also for race yeah, as well. Absolutely. Because you know the the really interesting thing about stereotyping is when you look at the ads. The people that are not being stereotyped just don't notice it, just don't mm-hmm. see it. You know, they only really see the, themselves, you know, in terms of in the ads. So if it's a man, then they, they take the man role and they kind of like see if the male is getting kind of offended as such. So if you flip the character and they become the female character, they equally will be more easily able to see, hang on, why this is probably not um, so fair. All right, so I think it's time. <laughs> All right, so I think it's time to move on to our million pound plus. What would we do if we had infinite money to solve this problem and answer this brief? For me, the money doesn't matter kind of option. I think you've got to use advertising, haven't you? That's what happens when you've got big bucks. You you know you, you put it in an ad. So for me, the the clue is about how can you advertise, um, you know, to to change people's perceptions and expectations about things. And I think that, you know, something that's very kind of clear is this kind of world of like photoshopping and, and uh, you know, making people look better than, than they are. And, and I know that a few different kind of brands have been kind of like, you know, in, in this space, but, but maybe there was um, a little bit more of, um, you know, I'm tempted to basically say, you know, create a ban of legislation. And this is like, I mean, imagine that someone that works in advertising talk about <laughs> legislation. Yeah, imagine if there was a Photoshop ban on, you know, changing people's, you know, weight, yeah. uh, let's say, mm-hmm. for example, or 
shades of skin things like that you know there's certain things you could probably agree on that could be like actually that's just you know we, we just shouldn't be allowed um you know changing the ways people's bodies are formed and that probably could be, could be quite quite nice in terms of having this kind of like uh no photoshop kind of ban on 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 imaging and uh and doing a campaign about it in terms of you know looking back at the ones in the in the, in the ads that have gone out that have been and rerunning those pre and post kind of like you yeah. know what the image was before so it would take quite extensive research to dig out all the you know the original assets but uh i think it could be quite striking you know when you you see mariah carey on the ad but she's you know six inches shorter her actual height and, and re-educate the world yeah. that way i love that i love that i was thinking that if i had all the money in the world i'd like to do what tide did at the super bowl um with that kind of pastiche of all of the different categories that kept on kind of reoccurring but do a pastiche of gender inequality in ads to really kind of bring it home you know not for a product right if we're going to you know if i've got all the money in the world and i can shout from the rooftops then let's do a pastiche of tide which was so famous as it as you know as it was but actually you know of, of the gender stigmatism um that's 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 within and inherent within all of those ads that will be next to and in between that tide ad um i think that that would be uh, you know <laughs> a hell of a lot of money more than that's that, that's our bezos uh, budget spent right just on the production and the and the media but it would certainly cause a conversation one would hope right i love the idea that you could use all the money in the world to buy all the super bowl slots and then run ads that are pastiche of the ad you would have seen. So it's a woman sat on the couch sipping her Budweiser and doing jack shit, whilst there's an ad for men doing the laundry on the next, you know, the next <laughs> advert. It's a wonderful idea. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, my idea for uh, unlimited money is to create a little bit of an ecosystem around female-made brands. There are some very mm. fantastic brands that have been built by women, not necessarily for women, but by women. Uh, Pip Murray founded Pip and Nut, a wonderful brand here in the UK. Trini Woodall of Trini and Susanna fame built a business. I mean, it's worth almost £200 million now, and it's uh, an amazing business that's a sort of makeup business built through communities of women on Facebook. Trini is a, a woman whisperer. And then there's a really interesting app founded by a very interesting lady called Billy Quinlan, who um, found an app called Furley, which is an audio app focused on closing the orgasm gap between men and women. So I was thinking, female-made brands have the, the blueprint of how to advertise to women. So I'm going to build an affiliate link website. Stay with me now. I know this isn't sounding very sexy yet. <laughs> it's an affiliate link website where you can buy brands made by women. So it's like Quidco, like one of those cashback sites, but it's exclusively for, for brands made by women. You could sign up to Bumble, for instance, and then you get you know a little bit of cashback, a couple of quid back um, as part of the affiliate payment. And all of the cashback funding goes into a fund for female-led brands to run advertising campaigns. So they can hire creative teams, they can create amazing ad campaigns, and they can create that blueprint and they can show through leadership how to talk to women and how to build brands that don't fall into those same old boring stereotypes. 
Oh, I love that purchase power um, uh, and, and using every single penny that I've got for good to, to empower even more women to then create an even louder voice, which then creates more women. I just I love it. Um, and obviously men can join in and, and, and purchase and be part of the movement because we need them too. Right. Um, I was going to I was going to say trust a woman to make affiliates sexy. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, <laughs> just... <laughs> I think that's got to be the tagline of the website. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, well, it feels it. like we've had uh, some pretty interesting ideas here. Of course, we don't have all the answers to this huge and complex issue, but I hope that, you know, we've helped to raise a few more questions and inspire a few new ideas and if you, the listener, would like to learn more about this topic, then I've got to say that a big part of my research for this particular episode was reading Brandsplaining by Jane Cunningham and Philippa Roberts. It's so witty, it's so intelligent, and it looks at sexism and marketing. So when you finish listening to this episode, do two things. Subscribe <laughs> and then go and buy that book. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, then uh, our LinkedIn bios will all be in the show notes. So you can um, drop us a note. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Next week, we're going to be chatting with Matt Box, who's a strategist and a comedian. We're going to be talking about getting ex-offenders into employment. And all that's left to do now is thank Rosie for joining us and thank you, our listeners, for listening. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Cheers.